The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Today, expert knowledge is so highly valued that we learn to lead first as the expert whose mastery of the details helps teams solve problems. Eventually, as your leadership role expands, expert leaders find themselves in a role where others know more. Details are no longer so accessible, and decisions are made without a full understanding. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone with Dr. Wanda Wallace. It's time to find out how to make the transformation smooth and flawless. Now, here is Dr. Wanda Wallace. Welcome to the show. This is your host, Wanda Wallace. Today we have four great topics. We're going to be talking with somebody who's transitioned from being a scientist and an expert to being a general leader. We want to talk about his experiences. We want to talk about building his confidence in a new area. We want to talk about dealing with emotions and a sense of vulnerability. And lastly, we'll hit that all-important topic on delegating. But let me welcome our guest today, Doug Williams. Um, Doug, you've had an incredible career in the biotech industry from being a researcher in hematology and a faculty member to corporate life as a scientist, being a CEO of a company, and eventually now heading R&D at Biogen. So it must have been an incredible series of experiences. Hi, Wanda. Thanks for having me on the show. And yeah, it's actually, I I have to say, um, it's been a terrific career. I'm glad to say it's not over. Um, And it's really a terrific business to be a part of. I mean, I wake up every day and get to work with very smart people. And you know, the reason we go to work every day is to develop new medicines for patients. And, you know, when that happens, and it, it's unfortunately a lot rarer than you might think, um, it's a really great experience to be a part of. So, Doug, I know from your background that you've been part of a couple of drugs that have kind of made a big hit. Um, tell us a little bit about one of those and what the experience was like to bring that sort of a drug to the market. Sure. I think the you know the one that stands out for me, and and probably the one that had the greatest impact um, for for both myself and for a lot of patients around the world, is having been involved in the um, development of a drug called Enbrel, which um, was back in my Immunex days. It was actually launched in 1998, and it it was a very important drug because it was the first um, biologic drug that was used in a chronic disease. And that was one of those things that, you know, a lot of people, dogma said you couldn't do that. Um, and I guess at Immunex, we weren't smart enough to believe the dogma. Uh, and, you know, somehow managed to create a drug that was the first biologic drug in a chronic disease. It was rheumatoid arthritis. And, um, you know, it changed the lives of literally hundreds of thousands of patients around the world. And, you know, I think the, the, the best part of that whole experience was getting the opportunity to meet some of the patients who really did have their lives transformed by being able to get access to that drug. And, and you know, it, it, it transformed their lives. 
That's incredible. And I know that that's part of what keeps everybody motivated and going in the industry. Um, Let me go back, though, and let's talk about the beginning of your career, particularly the transition from being a pure scientist, a hematologist, a faculty member, to leaving the university environment and coming into industry. That was a big out-of-the-comfort-zone step for you at that time. Well, it was, and it was, um, I guess it was a very unusual step at the time uh, in the sense that my own sense of what my career was going to be uh, was essentially, you know, getting R01 grants from the NIH to fund my basic laboratory research in the academic environment. And I chose a very different path, which at the time was not very common. I went right out of my postdoctoral fellowship, which is kind of the equivalent of, you know, when you get an MD, you do a residency. Uh, when you get a PhD like I did, you do a postdoctoral fellowship. It's sort of the uh, four years of indentured servitude where you kind of earn your chops uh, and learn how to do science the right way. You, it's all about publishing papers. That's what I thought I was going to be doing and ended up that the opportunity came about to go to Immunex um, somewhat unexpectedly and you know, it was just such a compelling idea to move into this brand new industry um, where you'd be part of a team that was doing something that, frankly, nobody knew if it was going to succeed. But but now it represents one of, I think, the biggest and most important industries here in in, in the U.S. and arguably around the world in terms of driving innovation in medicine. Okay, so why did you decide to do that? I mean, you have a whole career um, ahead of you. Why did you think industry was a good route? It, you know, I had been collaborating with some of the scientists at Immunex, um, and I got to know them. Um, I got to get a sense of what it was like to be in a corporate environment. And I put corporate in quotation marks because Immunex was one of those early generation of biotech companies that was, it was hard to distinguish between an academic lab and an industrial lab at that time because the work was very much the same. The difference was we were very much focused on the end game, which was, or or they were very much focused on the end game, which was to try to, you know, identify proteins, turn them into drugs, and bring them to the market as quickly as possible. Um, So I got to know these people, and, you know, as a result of that, was really impressed with the quality of the science and also impressed by the fact that you know, in in my academic life, I was always struggling to get access to certain reagents to be able to enable my research to move ahead. Um, and in the uh, sorry, in the biotech environment, it just seemed like they had a refrigerator full of these things that I could just walk up and grab. And if I didn't know how to do a particular technique, I could just pick up the phone, and there was somebody upstairs who knew how to do it, and you know would essentially pick up the ball and run with it with that aspect of the research. So I, I pretty quickly figured out that things would happen a whole lot quicker in the work that I was passionate about if I joined the kind of team environment that the biotech industry represented. Okay. All right. So let me just be clear about this. You join a corporate environment for the quality of the research to further the cause that you're really interested in from a pure science point of view. So now, when was was, that first time that you get the sense that you're going to move out of a pure scientist role and into a more generalist leader role? 
it kind of happened very quickly for me. Um, about a year after I started at Immunex, I went from being a staff scientist to um, being promoted into the position of head of the hematology laboratory. So I had probably a half a dozen staff scientists reporting to me. Um, you know, I guess that was a reflection of the fact that the science was going well, probably mostly that, um, but also the fact that, you know, I seemed to get along with everybody and be able to work on a team. Uh, so presumably my, my mentor and boss at the time uh, saw something in me that um, he thought was worth taking a risk on. So what, what was the hardest part for you in making that transition from, and so even as that first, you're still sort of the scientist leading a larger group of scientists, but as you moved into more leadership roles, what has been the most difficult thing to, to manage? Part of it is just getting comfortable with the fact that um, as you move further and further up the management chain, um, you become less and less of an expert. Uh, and more and more of a generalist. And, and that really, that's something you have to come to grips with and, and really ask yourself the hard question of whether I'm ready to do that because, you know, uh, I felt like I went from being, you know, uh, an inch wide and a mile deep and there was almost nothing that I, I felt like I, I couldn't address in my chosen field, you know, uh, to basically being a mile wide and an inch deep. And that... That transition was very, very uncomfortable and took literally, I think, years to be able to really come to grips with the fact that I had made a decision that um, was a one-way decision. You know, it, it's, it's not like you can go back to be the expert again. I think, I think you just have to recognize that when you make this transition, at least in my business and in the field I've chosen, you know, it's kind of a decision that changes the course of your career uh, in the career trajectory, and you just have to get comfortable with that. So what made you make that decision? I mean, is there any defining moment, or is it just a sort of steady increment? In my case, it was more just kind of a steady increment. Uh, I, I never went into Immunex um, with the expectation that I was going to go into management. I went into the company with the expectation that I was going to be able to do great science and you know, develop drugs along the way, but uh, it, it, it almost just sort of happened by accident that, that I became more of a generalist and a leader and, and less of a bench scientist and expert in any particular area. Any regrets? Do you wish you could go back to being the expert? Occasionally I do, but it's definitely the 90-10 rule where 90% of the time I know I made the right decision. The other 10%, it's like, you know, when I'm hearing a science presentation or I'm meeting with, with some of the guys on my team and I, I hear some really exciting stuff, it's like I, I get the pangs of kind of wishing I was back in the trenches again. But, you know, I also am smart enough to recognize that I can't go back. Okay, so go back to this sort of steady increment from moving from the scientist and the expert leading a lab to being the more generalist leader who's not in the day-to-day science. Um, what was the hardest part of that transition for you? You said going from being an inch wide and a mile deep to the reverse of that. What else was difficult in that transition? You know, I think you 
most of the reason that I feel like my first promotion came came about is because of the science I was doing and not because I necessarily had any experience managing people per se other than my little lab group. Um, so, you know, really starting into the process of, you know, having responsibility for a larger group, um, really sort of managing what they're doing, um, critiquing what they're doing, encouraging them, you know, moving them in the direction that the company wanted wanted and needed them to go in. That was a whole a whole new experience for me and I, I I was, you know, sort of learning on the fly. And in my case what made it even stranger is that uh that first promotion I went from reporting to somebody to having that person report to me. Um which was really uh, I guess baptism by fire from a managerial perspective. You know, I can't tell you how many times I hear this from people that I work with. Um, it's usually not somebody you were reporting to who suddenly suddenly reverses the order, but it's typically a peer that you now is reporting to you. So, you have any advice on how to manage this? Um, <laughs> you know, I can still remember the very first meeting. Uh, sort of after this change took place, and as you can imagine, it was it was pretty awkward for both of us. And uh, I think you know the way I tried to handle it was just to be transparent and straightforward. And you know, my usual technique for awkward moments is to try to interject a little bit of humor. I think I started the conversation uh, when she walked in by saying, "Well, this is kind of weird, isn't it?" And you know, after we had a little bit of a laugh. We were able to get down to business, but you know, trying to find those those ways to sort of um, disarm the tension in those situations, um, I think, is a really important part of being an effective manager and being able to deal with these sorts of transitions. Whether it's you know going from being the subordinate to having that person be the subordinate, or you know, a change uh, across the you know peer to um, to now being a step above those people. Yeah, I hear lots of people talk about this, and when I go to interview the person who was the manager or was the peer and is now the subordinate, and I ask them what they want, and most of the time what they say they want is just for the other person to acknowledge that it's a little peculiar. And often it's just, yeah. could you just admit this is hard or weird or strange or something? That that alone would be adequate. Well, because it is. You know, it, it, it's a very awkward situation, and, you know, whether it's peers or subordinates, you know, when, when, when you change places, um, you know, there, there's a period of adjustment, and I think you just have to acknowledge that, um, and it goes away with time. You know, people adapt. Okay. All right, so we're going to take a break here. Um, let me just highlight a couple of things, Doug, if I can, from this particular conversation. So if we look at your career, you go from being a deep scientist, loving the science, from a scientific background into an industry background for the purposes of continuing the science. And sort of a few months in, a year in, you find yourself in your first management role. And in that management role where someone was reporting to you is now reporting Read the referrals reverse. They're reporting to you. You were reporting to them, and learning to navigate that environment where you're no longer just doing the science, and then as a steady increment over years, taking on larger and larger roles as a leader, so that as you say now, you've gone from being the deep scientist to somebody who's a mile wide and an inch deep, 
and getting comfortable with the value that you bring in that process. So we're going to take a break. When we come back, Doug and I are going to talk about emotions, emotions of people that are working with you, emotions of those around you, your own emotions, managing those in this whole context of a scientific environment, an expert environment, and using it to get the best out of people. We will be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Are you an entrepreneur that wants to achieve more? Not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways? Listen for Be More, Achieve More, inspiration for the entrepreneurial mind. With host Chris Cooper, you'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. These people are making a difference and will help give you the motivation and insight to achieve more. Be More, Achieve More can be heard live Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. This is your host, Wanda Wallace. With me today is Doug Williams, who's the head of R&D for Biogen. Now, Doug has had a fabulous career going from a deep, being a deep scientist, a PhD scientist, to industry, and now to more of a generalist leader. As he likes to say, he went from being an inch wide and a mile deep to the exact opposite, a mile wide and an inch deep, and seems to have enjoyed the transition. So, Doug, in this last um, last part, we were talking about one of the drugs that you developed or were part of the team for developing Embrel. And I know that that had uh, particular emotional responses for you and for those around you. Now, emotion is an unusual word in corporate life. We tend not to use it. Certainly, we do talk about passion and about commitment. Those are all very good qualities. But that word emotion is a little bit, mm, we worry about getting too emotional. So how have emotions played in your life as a manager and as a leader? 
Well, I'm, I'm not actually afraid of that word. Um, and I think it does have a place um, in the corporate environment. But like everything, you know, it's sort of all things in moderation, including moderation. Um, it, it, as far as the emotion associated with, you know, being in our business, um, one of the key emotions that um, we try to tap into um, is really the emotion of the impact that these drugs have on the lives of our patients. Um, and, you know, what, what we tend to do um, really to help, help everybody kind of understand and get connected um, to the purpose behind the work is it's, it's not uncommon for us when we have retreats, for instance, you know, the immunology group will have a retreat. And one of the things that they will do is invite a patient in you know, if we're developing a drug for rheumatoid arthritis, for instance, um, invite a patient in and have them talk to us about, you know, what they're experiencing and what the challenges are with that disease and, you know, what they go through every day. Help, help everyone understand, you know, what the real need is for these patients. Um, and, you know, once we succeed, if we're lucky enough to succeed with, with bringing a drug to market, and patients are on the drug, and they are benefiting from it. You know, the same holds true. We tend to bring patients back into the company to talk to the scientists and, you know, let the scientists who did the discovery and the development and the production of the molecule really get a sense directly from those patients of just how transformational that's been for them. And I can tell you from you know, numerous experiences that I've had along the way um, that, I mean, there's, there's nothing more emotional, um, there's nothing more grounding, and there's nothing that connects you to that patient quite like hearing these stories. And, you know, the most cynical, data-driven, uh, hardcore scientist, uh, you know, I've seen, I've seen these guys, you know, weeping um, hearing these stories, and, and knowing that they've been a part of that, it, it's, it's the most, um, it, it's probably the most powerful thing, you know, that I've ever seen. And it's a big part of what keeps me going. You know, even though we fail a lot developing drugs, those few successes and knowing what that means is just, it's tremendously motivational. So... Uh, let me just make out and reiterate this one. There's a lot of mythology that people who are deep data analytical types don't have emotions and certainly don't cry. And I just heard you saying that scientists could be weeping talking to patients about the impact of a drug on their lives. Did I get that straight? You got that straight. I've seen it many, many times. In fact, I've been one of the weepers myself on more than a few occasions. So this is so it's not just about using the power of positive emotions, commitment, passion, but it's using the full range of emotions to drive a sense of purpose behind what we're doing. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And also what keeps you going when there's a lot more failures than there are successes, particularly in the pharmaceutical industry and the biotech industry in particular. Yeah, I mean you you may or may not know the statistics, but um, 
you know, for, for every drug that makes it into the clinic, I think only 5 or 10% of them ever come out the other end as, as an approved product. So, you know, we fail a lot more frequently than we succeed um, for a variety of different reasons. But, you know, if it, 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 it does, understanding what the end game is and understanding the impact of what a successful program can mean kind of gets you through the rough patches of, of the vast majority of programs that simply don't work for a variety of different reasons. Okay, now uh, let me shift the subject a little bit. Still on this topic of emotions, um, I know you've said that you really learned to read the room, um, to see what other people in the room were feeling and to understand their emotions. How, how do you do, tell us how that works and how did you learn to do it? Um, you know, I think I learned, like many things, uh, I learned from my mentors along the way. Um, you sort of pick up the little tricks um, that they use and, and you cherry pick the things that seem to work. Uh, a lot of it is, you know, if, you, if you're in a group setting, um, and I'll use my own team as an example, there's, there's uh, I think, eight of us um, in my senior leadership team, and there's two things that I look for when we're having a debate and having a conversation um, and trying to resolve a problem. One is eye contact. You know, are, are, are people looking away when I'm looking at them? And two is, do they say anything? Um, a lot of times what I find is that um, people who may have an issue, um, certainly I find that they look away um, and they don't want to make eye contact. They don't want you to call on them if they're uncomfortable and, and, and perhaps not in agreement. And that's my cue to, you know, sort of ask a question um, and, and try to elicit their perspective and get it out on the table. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, it's important, I think, for, for people to, uh, I guess, come clean uh, if they have a problem with the direction a conversation is going. It, it's hard. You know, it, it, it's very hard. Sometimes it depends on who the comment has come from. Um, you know, if it comes from me, it carries a different kind of weight than, than perhaps the, the peer group around the table. But what we always try to do is just make sure we get stuff out on the table. And sometimes that requires a little bit of coaxing and a little bit of reading of body language. But those are the two things that I particularly look for is if somebody's gone quiet, um, I'd, I'd like to know why. Maybe they're cheating and they're looking on their BlackBerry. Um, or maybe they have an issue that they're not quite comfortable getting out there and, you know, just call the question. And if they're okay with it, you gave them their day in court. Um, you know, but, but, it, but at least, you know, you've, you've had the opportunity to try to air whatever point of view that people have. So, Doug, what you're saying, in effect, is you look at the body language, the emotions, the eye contact, the silence, the kind of sort of disengaging from the group as a signal that there is dissension or disagreement or conflict, to use a different word, and then actively try to draw that conflict into the conversation in a constructive way. Yes, that's right. And, you know, maybe it's easier for uh, for. For folks who have kind of gone through the scientific learning process, because um, we, we actually, 
a lot of the scientific process and a lot of presentations at scientific meetings, if, if you weren't part of that world, you would think that they were very combative and, um, you know, people challenging each other, and that's true. Um, and we kind of grow up in that environment where I think maybe because we're scientists and in order to earn your chops in the science, you have to be able to do that effectively, that maybe we're a little more comfortable with that kind of challenging one another type of, of situation. I, I don't know how broadly that plays across other industries, but you know it's kind of part and parcel of, of how you become a scientist and, and how you defend your work. And so we're, I think, intrinsically more comfortable with that kind of situation. Okay. Well, I find lots of industries where there's comfort with challenge, and it's not all from the scientific world. A lot of it, in my experience, has to do with how the leader creates the environment on the team and whether the leader draws out that disagreement and is okay with it and makes it all right for everybody else to be okay and also how much trust they put into the system. So if it, if I know that I can say what I'm thinking and I know that you're not going to jump down my throat for it, I'm far more likely to say it. So there's a lot of the environment that gets created. Um, let me ask, you know, sometimes you must have people on the team who are not the easiest um, personalities to deal with, meaning or people you deal with, not necessarily on your team, where what they say comes across very edgy and harsh. Um, how do you deal with those kind of folks in this sort of environment where you want the ideas to come forth? Yeah, and I, I know exactly the type of person you're talking about, and um, I think you know the science is perhaps enriched for that, that type of personality. Um, you know, it, 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 it's a very difficult thing um, because those people are often, at, at, at least in, 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 in my company, those people tend to be the sort of brilliant outliers. Um, and, and we perhaps tolerate a little more from them because, you know, it, it's a little bit about uh, the benefit-risk ratio that these people bring to the table. Um, if they bring enough benefit, you can offset some of the risk. And in this case, the risk is that they're going to be disruptive with some of their colleagues. And it's always a bit of a judgment call as to, you know, uh, how to control these people, um, how to channel these people. Um, there's no simple way of doing it, at least in my experience, uh, other than if you happen to catch them in the moment, and the circumstances are appropriate, the best thing you can do is some sort of course correction in real time because it, it's important on two levels. One, it's important for the person who has, uh, I'll call it misbehaved or not behaved appropriately towards one of their peers or one of their colleagues, um, but it's also important for the people who are on the receiving end of that behavior to see it being corrected in real time. Um, what I find is that, particularly with people like this, they, they tend to um, they have the fans and the detractors. And you want to make sure that the, the detractors at least know that you're aware of whatever challenges these individuals have as far as being able to interact smoothly with the people around them. So to the extent that you can kind of catch them in the act and and acknowledge that, you know, that that's just not the way we want to do things. Um, the people around them see it and, and feel supported. 
and the individual gets the message in real time. So presumably you're not talking about calling people out. You're talking about um, embarrassing them in public. You're talking about saying, well, that's a little harsh in the moment, or there's another way of saying it. I presume you do this in a slightly gentle way. Yeah, it's not about calling them out, you know, and and I think the words you choose to use are very important um, in, in terms of making it a course correction as opposed to a public scolding. I love that phrase, course correction versus a public scolding. Fabulous. All right, we're going to take a break here again. Um, so this, I think this is fascinating, talking about this whole new thing of emotions in a very scientific world. So, Doug, if I take the comments from this section, the things that really stand out for me are the notion that even the hard-nosed, data-driven scientists of the world have very strong, very powerful emotions and that those, you know, even tears and that that can be an important point for driving, dragging people through the downsides, the failures, the not so when everything isn't working smoothly. The second point I take from you is the importance of reading the room and understanding how to read the body language, the eye contact and the silence and use that as a moment to drag opinions into the voice so that it's all heard. And then the final point that I take on this one is this notion that people say things in ways that are not particularly um, effective with a larger group, but it's a matter of um, course correcting it uh, versus having a public um, hanging for that one. When we come back, I want to talk about this notion of confidence. I want to go back to how do you build your confidence as you move from an expert to a generalist? How do you get comfortable in that role and feel that you are doing a great job? So with me today is Doug Williams, um, our head of R&D for Biogen, and we will be right back. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, 
Call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Doug Williams, who's currently head of R&D at Biogen. We've been talking about Doug's transition from being a scientist who was an inch wide and a mile deep um, to being a general leader who's now the reverse, a mile wide and an inch deep. And in particular, we were just talking about the role of emotions, some very powerful, strong emotions that can be both the motivator for sustaining through failures when things don't go as smoothly, as well as really powerful signals in getting um, dissenting opinions on the table in a way that's constructive. Sometimes that's easier said than done, as we were just discussing. At this point, though, I want to turn to talk about confidence, because as you move from being an expert where you know, as you said earlier, Doug, how to do just about everything that's in front of you into a more of a leadership role, you start to lose your confidence. So presumably this was true for you, Doug. Were there moments when your confidence suffered? Um, Yeah, I think so. Um, and, And, you know, Perhaps one of the specific examples I can think of is, you know, in the in I'll go back to Immunex again, um, and in the early days of sort of learning how to be a manager and moving away from the science, or at least away from the bench, um, doing science myself and and to managing scientists, um, a big part of what happens in biotech companies is that we have to communicate with our investors. Uh, because we are typically, um, prior to being profitable biotech companies, we're almost continuously raising funds to plow back into the development of our drugs. So we talk to investors frequently. Um, That was always done by my mentor and former boss, uh, Steve Gillis, who was one of the founders of Immunex. He always handled that. And... I think there was a point, and I can't remember exactly when it was, but there was a point when I guess he came to the conclusion that I was able to communicate the science um, to non-scientists, uh, to investors, and, and uh, to, to other folks. And, you know, I, I, I tended not to oversell it, um, but, you know, was able to communicate it in a way that, that made sense to people. So he came to me one day and you know, said, um, we're going to have an analyst meeting. We're going to have a bunch of Wall Street investors come to the company. Uh, there'll probably be about 50 of them, and you're going to do the presentation. Um, I, I think my re- response to him was, excuse me, come again. Um, but that, you know, that was, that was a really different exper- uh, experience. I guess it was an experiment, too, but a different experience for me because it was no longer peer-to-peer scientist-to-scientist, which was well within my comfort zone, even though I was moving towards a managerial role, to now communicating with a completely different audience in a completely different way. Um, Steve was really smart about the way he did it, though, because even though it was a very different experience and I was a little bit rattled by the idea that I was going to be the one to have to do this, what he did was he asked me to basically talk about the work that I was most familiar with, 
and that I had been associated with and that arguably I was still an expert in. And so he took me out of my comfort zone by keeping me in my comfort zone, if you know what I mean. And basically, I did the presentation. It came off okay. I didn't say anything particularly stupid or bad. And, you know, I think that was the start of um, what has now become a huge part of what I do in my day job at Biogen is communicating with investors about what we're doing in R&D, why we're doing it. And, you know, Steve had a very clever way of easing me into that process um, that has now become such an important part, you know, of my skill set, um, basically being comfortable doing that with, with what is a very different audience. I love that, that he took you out of your comfort zone by keeping you a comfort zone. So you're going to talk in a different way with a completely different audience, but about a topic you know really, really well. Now, in the run-up to that analyst meeting, I presume you were fairly nervous. Um, what did you do to prepare for this? Any secrets in that one? Um, you know, I, I confided in Steve that I was very nervous about, um, you know, being up in front of this group. And, uh, again, uh, I, I have learned a lot from, from my mentor. And I remember what he said to me is, look, relax. Nobody knows this stuff better than you do. So just get up there, talk about it. They'll ask questions, but you're the expert. You're the guy who knows this. So relax and just go do it. Love that. I say that to people all the time. Just relax. You know it yeah. better than you need to. In fact, one of the things we say about boosting confidence is to reassure yourself what it is you know as well as anybody else in the room. And there you have the case in point. So now, presumably now as a manager, you are constantly taking people on your team and in your organization out of their comfort zone and helping them boost their confidence. How do you go about doing that? You know, it often happens um, when when you promote someone, when you put them in a new job, you, know, you may not even be promoting them, but when you change their job description and, and put them in a, a different situation, there there's always, I think, for all of us, uh, a moment where you have to ask yourself, you know, can I do this new job um, and can I do it as well as what I was doing previously? So I think everybody gets a little bit rattled when they're, when they're trying something new for the first time. You know, I, I'm pretty shameless. I go back to what I learned from my mentor and continue to kind of reinforce the message that, you know, you know this stuff better than anybody else. Just go out and do it. Relax. You know, I'm here to backstop you. Um, I'm not going to tell you how to do the job because you already know, but if you run into a problem and you need some help, you know, I'm always here uh to give you advice and counsel and try to mentor you along the way it the way it was done to me. Do you ever find that you need to give people a pep talk? You know, you can do this. I have faith in you, kind of thing. Sure. Um, I, I, and frankly, I think I spend a fair bit of time doing that. Um, you know, because again, this is the business that we're in is a business um, that disproportionately involves failure and not success. And so I think you're constantly reinforcing the message that you're on the right track, you're doing the right things. You know, the science is the science. Uh, The experiment will work or not. Um, It doesn't mean that your career will work or not. It just means that this is part of the process. And, you know, get through it, 
Um, and, and be confident. You know what you're doing. Just go out and do it. There's a lot of reinforcement that has to go on. Yeah, I I think it's something we don't do nearly well enough. We're per- perfectly willing to call people on what they didn't do well, so we'll give them the critical feedback, but we don't often give the positive messages. Now, you said that you stopped short of telling people how to do the job because they already know how to do that. Is that because of the impact on confidence, or is there some other thinking behind that statement? Um, you know, again, I, I, I do try to... to um, coach and, and sort of play on, on building up their confidence, um, you know, but I'm also honest with them too. You know, oftentimes we'll sit down and I just had a recent example of this with um, well, one of the people that reports to me that, that is responsible for a fairly sizable group. It's a new job and, you know, we sit down and talk about um, what what they want to do with the group, the direction they want to take the group, some of the changes that maybe need to be made. And, you know, I try to do a lot of listening. Um, and, you know, I'll only kind of jump in if I feel like, again, this concept of a course correction needs to be made. And, you know, a lot of times I try to do that with humor, too, because if you're telling somebody that you want them to do something different, um, you know, uh, often I'll use the term, well, you know, that might be a train wreck. Uh, and, and, you know, again, it, you, you basically say, I'm, I'm teasing, but, you know, maybe you want to think about X, Y, or Z. And I'm not sure which of those is going to be the right answer, but why don't you go away and think about it, and then we'll talk about it again. So it, you're not, I, I don't like to tell people what to do necessarily because I think they probably have better answers than I do but you know I think you have to be honest that if 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 they're on the wrong track and you really believe that um, you know part of the job of being a mentor is not let people not letting people go down the wrong track you know you may not know what the right track is um, but if the wrong one is there and you know it uh, that that's a big part of the coaching process too Fabulous, Doug. All right, we're going to take a break again. Um, The part I love from this one is the notion that every time we put you into a new job, a new role, a different situation, ask you to do something you've not done before, that that is going to have an impact on confidence and that people are always asking this question, can I do this new role as well as I was doing my old role? You see, Doug, your job as the manager is boosting their confidence, giving them the pep talk, but at the same time, keeping an eye that they're not about to have a train wreck and go down some major wrong path and then do that in a way that leaves them feeling confident and in control of it as opposed to having been chastised. It's fabulous. When we come back, that's a perfect transition. I want to talk about delegation and I want to talk, Doug, about how you delegate and how you encourage people around you to delegate. We've been doing a bit of it, but we'll take a bit of a deeper dive. So we'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. 
If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Doug Williams, who is head of R&D for Biogen. Doug's career has gone from being a deep scientist to being a general manager responsible for a larger group. We've had quite a far-ranging conversation thus far, talking about emotions and confidence Um, and the power of those in leading a group. And so in this last bit, we were just talking about the ways as a manager, Doug, that you try to boost people's confidence when you take them out of their comfort zone. So I want to turn to the related topic, which is on delegate. So what's the secret, Doug, in delegating and getting people to do what you want them to do and having them feel like they're still in control of it? How do you do that? Hmm. Well, one thing is a truism, and that is, you know, if you hire really good people, it's a whole lot easier to delegate. Um, and so we, and, and I know I do, that, you know, part of the process of hiring and, and creating a team uh, is to really make sure that you've got the best people you can find, and ideally people who complement some of your own weaknesses, um, and also hold them accountable for the fact that, you know, Hey guys, you got a seat at the big table here. Um, it, it takes some action on your part to um, to keep that seat and to earn that seat. Uh, and part of that is not just you know sort of working within your silo, but recognizing that you've now got responsibility that goes beyond that. Um, so you know, delegating to really good people is actually a, a relatively easy thing to do. You know, and I, I sort of ascribe to the trust but verify um, mantra in terms of, you know, sort of how you manage that. You know, these are high-powered people. They want control. Um, and I think, you know, the, the key here is that um, I don't, at least I tend one-size-fits-all sort of mentality. Um, I, I sort of titrate the amount of oversight and influence to, um, you know, to the individual. Some people require maybe more 
um, direct contact and advice and counsel, but, um, you know, others don't require very much at all. I've got some people that, you know, uh, I'll, I'll tend to meet with them for 15 minutes once a week, and that that's enough. And, and others, you know, I'll bump into them in the hallway and we'll have half-hour-long conversations on a pretty frequent basis. Um, it really depends on the individual, but, you know, good people are easy to delegate to. All right, so we hire a really good group. We bring them together as a team so that they see it's not just their individual contribution, their individual silo, but the greater process. And then you said to trust but verify. Can you give us an example of how you go about verifying? Yeah, you know, again, it's um, it, it's a lot of watching and listening um, and, you know, essentially making sure that you're visible and accessible within the organization. Um wander the hallways, um, give people the opportunity to chat you up and tell you the, uh, the good things that are happening and the things that concern them. And, you know, the more they see you and the more they realize that, that they can have those sorts of conversations with you, um, the easier it gets. And I think the more you're able to really kind of keep a finger on the pulse. Obviously, in a, in a company of 8,000 people, it starts to get a little bit difficult, but, um, you kind of learn where to go um, to bump into people uh, to uh, actually kind of maximize the time that you have available to be able to um, to do the verification part, and it's kind of a soft veri- verification, is what I what I would call it. Ultimately, you know, the results tell the true story as to whether or not your trust was well founded or not. So I've heard this from other leaders as well, this notion that you're listening very carefully in all parts of the organization. And if what you're hearing from your direct team and what you're hearing from other places is fairly consistent, then you got, you're comfortable. But when you start to hear other things, you need to kind of go into the details. Does that resonate with what you think of when you delegate? Yeah, I think so. You know, I, I really do try to um, um, take as much of a hands-off approach as possible. Um, again, it's this notion of you hire extraordinary people and you know my job is really to give them the space to do what they're great at and to interact with you know the other guys around the table to, to really get the best out of everybody. And if you allow for that sort of challenging uh, one another kind of environment and people respect each other, um, I think ultimately you get to the best answer. Um, and, you know, delegation is something that is earned. Um, you know, you don't just kind of give it away in perpetuity. Fabulous. Okay, Doug, it's hard to believe we're almost near the end here. Um, any last words of advice that you'd like to give to experts in general who are making this transition to leadership? Well, I guess the advice I would give... Um, is just, you know, really ask yourself the question whether you want to start down this path because I think for technical experts to move away from the bench and towards a more general managerial role, typically it's hard to go back. Um, And so I think you really have to look yourself in the mirror and say, am I comfortable going to the inch wide and a mile deep to a mile wide and an inch deep? And you know, be sure you can answer that question with a wholehearted yes. There's Doug, a lot of rewards you. to doing management. 
Thank you, Doug. I really appreciate that. Unfortunately, we have to stop at this point. So, Doug, thank you for being here. That was wonderful. The thing that really resonates with me throughout all of this is this notion of using the emotions, the positive and the negative ones, to kind of motivate, as well as the way in which you get the touch of correcting people along the way as a manager and leader. Next week, Angela Knight is going to be my guest, and we will be talking about being politically astute, bringing folks that do not want to collaborate to the table to accomplish things that are really quite dramatic. So join us next week, same time, same place. And Doug, thanks again. My pleasure. Thank you again for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Take charge this week. 